The next two Sundays, any Sunday matters. We celebrate church together on Sunday. It's the day that Jesus rose from the dead, and every day, every moment matters. The particular, this Sunday and the one to follow on December 6th will be particularly important, and you can pray for me as I try to do it. Because periodically, about uh, once a year, I like for us to talk, and today we will talk. This won't be entirely a monologue, so prepare to uh, think a little bit about some questions I'm going to ask you. Feel free to call out your answers. Do so in a reasonably polite way, okay? There might be some disagreement among us, but we'll, we'll work through it together. This Sunday and next, I'm changing my approach to Bible teaching as well. Generally speaking, I do what they call, if you care about such things, expository preaching, which is to find a single unit in the Bible, study it to discover the idea that it's trying to communicate, and then once I've discovered the, uh, that the idea that the Bible is trying to communicate, guess what comes next? I try to communicate it to you. Right. Okay. Simple. Today, I'm changing that a little bit, and there's biblical examples of that too. Today, I'm going to take a single idea from Scripture, but you're going to see the idea is so important, it is woven throughout Scripture. We're not going to be in a single passage. We're going to be in several to answer this vital question. What in the world should the church be doing? Why are we here? What is our purpose? I want you to think a little bit about, a, if you can, if you know a few Christian people, they don't all have to be part of our church, okay? In fact, it would be better if they weren't as you think about this. If you think about four or five or six Christians that you know or remember conversations you've had with Christians, what is the church supposed to be doing? What is our purpose? Talk to me now. I understood not one word, so thank you for being polite, but uh, maybe a little more assertiveness and I can understand you. Yes, sir, you said? Making disciples. What else have you heard? Share Jesus, okay? Serving. What else? Praising the Lord. Yes. Give the message out and save lives. Love each other. Yes. Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, strength, mind, and your neighbor as yourself, okay? How about the poor? Do we care about the poor? Feed the poor? Any other groups that need Christian love and attention? Widows and orphans. I heard something down here. What was it? Was it widows and orphans? All right, good. Prisoners. Jesus said, I was in prison and you visited me. That must matter. Yeah, what about loving our enemies? Jesus said to do that too, right? Okay. Now, how many answers did we just come up with as a church family? About a dozen, right? Were they contradictory? No, but there's a lot to do, right? Now, put yourself in the position of a pastor and imagine that the 12 people who spoke up all call a meeting with me on Monday, 
And they come in with their Bible and they say, Pastor, according to what I read here, it says love the Lord. It says pray for love and pray for your enemies. It says to care for widows and orphans. It says to share the message and the life of Jesus so that others may be saved. It says to praise God. And this is one meeting after another. You understand the complexity of being a pastor sometimes? Now, were any of those answers mistaken? No. In fact, many of them, if not all of them, had a Bible verse to support them, right? It's complex. In the average church, and we're, I don't know if we're above average, okay? I'd say I'd, if we're a healthy church and a growing church and a loving church, but in a normal church, let's use that word, people will read their Bible, their attention will be fastened to a particular thing, Okay? Answers from the first service would be, would include also to be salt and light, okay? To speak up for life, to raise children to follow Jesus, because we didn't, if you think about it, we didn't even think about the Christian home and marriage. We are just talking about ourselves and the people outside the walls. There's a lot of different answers to one single question, which is, why is the church here? Now, what happens in a, what happens in a, in a church? it gets pulled in about 18 different directions. All of them clamoring with the Bible in every person, clamoring, Bible in hand, this is what we're supposed to be doing. And by the way, we didn't mention overseas either. We didn't mention missions. So, in churches, I've known churches that have as many as 15 committees, each with an issue, and they're all biblically correct. Today, I'd like to talk to you about what we're supposed to be doing because, believe it or not, with all of those completely correct scriptural answers, Jesus did us the great favor of telling us exactly what we're supposed to be doing before He left earth. He left and He promised to come back and He told us what we should, what we should be doing in the meantime. Would you care to hear His answer? I think I'll go home now. Uh, thank you so much. That was perhaps the least enthusiastic response in the 10 years that I've been here. <laughs> Not to berate you, but I'll try that once more. Jesus told us exactly what Crosspoint should be doing. Would you be mildly interested in hearing what he said? <laughs> okay, now we're talking. All right. Jesus has died on the cross and risen from the dead just as he promised to do. All of the scripture pointed to this moment you've been with us through the story, we went 31 weeks tracing creation to new creation. And when Jesus was back from the dead, he gathered his disciples exactly where he told them to be, and he said this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Quite a statement. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, look, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's start in the beginning. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. No one on earth or heaven can say that except Jesus. Can you think of a single area in your life where you have all authority? There might be one or two. Is that authority ever contested? Jesus is special. He is unique. He is utterly unique. 
He gathered his followers and he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Then, on the basis of that utterly unique in the universe authority, he told his disciples what to do. And Matthew, who was an eyewitness of these words, heard them coming from Jesus' mouth, helpfully, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote them down so that all of Jesus' other disciples, up to today, 2,000 years later, would know exactly what Jesus intended for us to do on the basis of his authority. And he said this, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And that commandment is so huge, so daunting, so world-changing, he gave an assurance at the end. He said, behold, look, pay attention, I am with you always to the end of the age. As you do this, on the basis of my authority, I'm not leaving you on your own. I am sending you out, and I promise to be with you as you do what I say. It's huge. In fact, it's so huge that this passage has a nickname that Christians have given it. What do we call this? The Great Commission. Not the Great Suggestion. Not the Great Option. The Great Commission. We have been commissioned to do something. This passage is so big, like I said, that it got a nickname. Sometimes we do this. My boys and I are football fans, and if you're a football fan, you'll know that some plays are so spectacular in a league full of spectacular athletes that certain plays get nicknames, like the Immaculate Reception, or the Drive, or in my beloved Dallas Cowboys, Roger Staubach threw a pass that was, is now known as the, the Hail Mary, because Staubach was Catholic, and he hurled the football as far as he could, and somehow it stuck on Drew Pearson's hip, and that's how the Cowboys beat the Vikings, and I'm mentioning it because I haven't had much to cheer about in a long time <laughs> as a Cowboys fan. But that play was so big, we know it, and we named it. These instructions are so big that they have a nickname. This is what we're supposed to be doing. Now, what about all the other things? Jesus said some of the things that you mentioned. Here's the point. It all falls under. It all supports. It's all a part of. It's all a dimension of doing what he told us to do. I know that because the Bible was not written in our language. We have wonderfully accurate translations of it. But Matthew actually wrote this down in Greek. And if you'll indulge me for just a second, let me explain to you a very important grammatical point that is not immediately evident when we read it in English. In language, there are different kinds of communication. An imperative statement in grammar is a statement of command. For instance, you might say to your children, clean your room, and that's imperative. That's an imperative in grammar. It might be preceded by a different kind of statement, like this, your room is filthy. Now, is that a commandment? No. Any grammar geeks, you know what kind of statement that is? Your room is filthy is not imperative. It's, a, it's an observation. It's a, it's a statement about reality, and that is called a what? Nope, an indicative. I don't know what you said, so don't take it personally if I said nope, because there was just a muddle of voices. Okay. An indicative statement is followed by an imperative statement. Johnny, your room is filthy. Indicative. Go clean it. 
imperative. Now, why am I walking you through all that? For this simple point. The only, grammatically speaking, the only imperative in this paragraph is, are these words. Make disciples. You say, well, wait a second. It says go. It says go and baptize and teach. Aren't those imperative too? Not in the grammar of Matthew's language. What Jesus said was make disciples. And all those other words are what we call participles. Now don't get lost in these crazy terms. It sounds like this. Going, make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them. And Greek grammar grammarians, and I am not one of them, will tell you that because those participles depend on that single commandment, they also have some flavor of an imperative. Because Jesus said to make those disciples where? Where, that, where is that supposed to happen? All nations. So you can't make disciples of all nations unless you do what? Go. And those disciples will be known and made as they are baptized and taught. But here's the point. And Matthew was very explicit. He said, according to Jesus, in the meeting that he called just before returning to the Father, he gathered all the disciples and he made this statement, I have all authority everywhere. Wow. And what he said next was, one single commandment, make disciples. To make those disciples, you're going to have to go places, and those disciples will be known when they are baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and it is also your job to teach those disciples, but those things all fall under the heading of this single instruction, make disciples. You say, well, we weren't there on that hillside. No, you weren't. This imperative commandment is for every disciple of Jesus in all time, and that's a little daunting. Because if I called you, I'm going to speak to you personally, and I want your honest reaction. If, some, if I called you tomorrow and said, Bob, we'll say your name is Bob for the purposes of this example, I have someone here in my office who just trusted Jesus as Savior in the service yesterday. He needs to grow to maturity in Christ. He needs to be discipled. I want you to do it. What's your reaction? Someone said, sure. Other people, literally, as I said that, sat back and got wide eyes and started gathering their things in case they were put on the spot to do that. It's a big commandment, but I have very good news for you. You can make progress, and the purpose of our church then is to make disciples. As a body, what we are to be doing is making disciples. That's our commandment. Every other thing that Jesus told us to do is a part or a picture or an expression of that disciple-making effort. But we dare not be pulled into about 12 different tribes that each fastened its attention on one thing that Jesus said and elevates that above his one commandment to us, which was to make disciples. But there's a little more background that I need to put down. What in the world do I mean by a disciple? See, if a church is ever going to be unified and not pulled into factions of competing agendas with about 12 different visions of what church life looks like, because imagine if every one of you who spoke scripturally a minute ago, when I asked that question, imagine if you dedicated yourself to that one thing. 
Imagine the tension and the difficulty between those who say we are to be evangelizing the lost and others who point to the book of James and say we should be caring for widows and orphans. Imagine what they would each think of the other if the other couldn't or refused to help. How do we move forward as a unified church? And we must because the Bible says that the church is the body of Christ. And it's not divided, it's united. It says that we are a holy temple built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. It says that Jesus is our head and we are members individually in the body of Christ. How can the body move forward in unity on purpose to do what Jesus, its head and founder, said to do? By paying very careful attention to his single commandment to make disciples. But if that's going to happen, we have to have some common language. Because when I say any biblical term, I know from experience that you get about 12 different versions or visions of what that means. One of my boys is an an ROTC cadet, and one of the transformations I'm noticing in him is he is learning a whole new language. The military loves acronyms, apparently. Okay. So he says, he talks to me about CULP, okay? And he talks to me about APFT, and he talks to me about Dodmet and Dodmerb. Anybody know what that means? Maybe if you were in the military, if you're a civilian like me, you have no idea what that means. Now, why do they take the time to teach 18-year-old kids a whole other language? For unity of purpose. So that everybody will know what everybody means, and you don't have competing visions of what effectiveness looks like. Let me suggest a verse to our church that I took from a pastor who has taught me a great deal about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. It's found in Matthew 4.19. It's on your sheet. Will you read it with me? Jesus came to some men and he said this. He said to them, read with me. Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Now what's happening here? Jesus is inviting people into discipleship. He is asking people who are in their own lives to leave that life and follow him. So a disciple of Jesus is a person, first of all, who is following Jesus. He has a personal relationship with him. Jesus didn't invite his disciples to know and recite a creed. He invited them to know him and to follow him. Creeds have their place, but it's personal first. You have to know Jesus so that you can follow him. There's a personal relationship with me, with him. What else does it say? Follow me and I will, I will make you. Well, that's a whole other concept. Follow me and I will make you. A disciple of Jesus then is someone who's being transformed by Jesus. Radical changes are in store for everyone who is really following Jesus. If you're really following Jesus, you will be changed. If you're not following Jesus, you'll stay the same. And keep that in mind. If you're roughly the same person from three years ago, in all that time you think you've been following Jesus, something is amiss, something is awry. Because Jesus never invites someone to follow him without also saying that he will change that person. Jesus is inviting you to follow the leader. He knows exactly where he's going. He knows exactly what he wants. He knows the change that he has in mind for his disciples. Anybody ever play follow the leader? Is that still done? 
I grew up in Mexico, so sometimes our games vary, but follow the leader if you've never played it is this. You run in a reasonably straight line, and kids take turns being the leader, and the game works like this. The leader is a kid in front, and what are all the others supposed to do based on what he does? They, whatever he does. I hated it when the most athletic kid on our block was the leader because I knew that he would embarrass all of us and probably injure a couple of us. He would run along the edge of rooftops. He would vault over fences. He would do all kinds of things, and people who were following that particular leader tended to fall behind. Jesus will injure no one along the way. There may be adversity and trouble, but he knows exactly where he's going. He knows exactly what he has in mind. And what he wants you to do is to personally follow him and trust him so that you will become as he is. Look at Luke 6.40. Jesus said, a disciple is not above his teacher. Get that? A disciple is not above his teacher. A disciple is not in charge. The teacher is. To use trade language, a master craftsman is, not, is in charge, not the apprentice. That's the closest thing in our culture to a discipling relationship. Someone knows and feels and thinks all about, he's got it all figured out in this particular world and discipline, and he is inviting the apprentice to learn from him so that he can do what he does. Because it says a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be, what's it say? like his teacher. That's not conceptual. That's what Jesus has in mind for you. He's not giving an abstract idea. He is explaining discipleship. What Jesus wants you to do is have a personal relationship with him, and given enough time, you will be like him. You'll feel and think and act and give and love and serve and forgive, and you will do all things as he does them. See, the disconnect in our little follow the leader game is there was absolutely no training. There was one guy who could do it all who dared the others to try to imitate him. Jesus is not a master like that. He wants to meet you exactly where you are and move you forward in training so that you are following him, you are being transformed by him, and you are joining him on his mission. Because Matthew 4.19 at the end says, follow me and I will make you what? Fishers of men. Now, why in the world did he say that strange phrase? He was speaking to commercial fishermen. He was speaking to ordinary workers whose lives consisted of making sure every day that the boat was watertight and the nets could catch. And they're busy with the nets, and they're busy with the boats. And one day Jesus comes to them, looks them in the eye, and then he says, you follow me, and I'm going to make you into something different. Your life is not going to be about boats and nets anymore. You're going to be involved in the lives of people. Now, Jesus may not ever put you, as he did the disciples, into full-time vocational ministry, but he wants to personally call and transform every one of his disciples and change your vision and your mission in life. You may have the same job and the same career, but if you're really following Jesus in that place and with the resources you gain from it and all the experiences that he pours into you in your place of employment, you will join him on his mission. 
The health, the growth, the transformation you've seen in our church boils down to one thing. More and more people have stopped following their own agenda, paid more attention to Jesus, and with what they have and what He has given them, according to their best understanding and their best ability to obey at that moment, they've joined Jesus on His mission. And the blessing and the growth and everything you see around you is the result of people listening to Jesus rather than going off on their own thing and inviting Jesus to follow them. You ever invited Jesus to follow you? I have. I've had many bright ideas and charged off with all of my considerable intelligence through the front door saying, Jesus, I've figured it out. Come with me. And he promised to be with me, but he never said that he would support my ideals and my goals. He said he would love me and he would be faithful to me. He said he would forgive me. But make no mistake, the master's in charge, not the disciple. A disciple is not above his teacher, but here's an amazing promise. Everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Paul understood that. That's why he said in Colossians 1.28, we proclaim him. We're not talking about ourselves. We're not talking about our old religion. We're not espousing our own ideas. We proclaim Him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone, big word, mature in Christ. We don't speak about ourselves. We broadcast, we message Him. And we speak to everyone in every way so that at the end of that process, the disciples that we come into contact with will be mature. They will be like Christ. That's mission. Now, that may seem very daunting to you, but let me simplify it using a visual that I've explained two other times. You won't find this picture anywhere in the Bible, but this is a picture that explains a biblical concept. We call it the family table. I invite you through that to look at Crosspoint as people sitting around a family table. This is how we measure progress. At a family table, there are people at various spiritual stages in life. There are people, first of all, who are dead. Ephesians 2.1 says, you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Someone who is spiritually dead is invited into the family of God, but he is unresponsive because dead people cannot respond. They are not capable of life on their own. They are not capable of effecting their own rescue. And if you've been following Jesus for some time, I'm sure you still remember when you were spiritually dead. You were indifferent to Jesus. Maybe you didn't even believe that he existed. But then through a whole bunch of influences probably that Jesus brought into your life. At a certain point, you knew two things. You knew you had sinned and you knew that he was the Savior. And you trusted him and you asked him to forgive your sins and save you. And he did. And I remember that moment for me, I felt literally as if an enormous burden had been lifted off my little shoulders. And I didn't know a whole lot about the Bible. I couldn't explain 1% of the things I've shared with you this morning, but I knew that God loved me and had welcomed me into His family. When people are born again, as Jesus said in John chapter 3, they become, what do we call people right after they're born? Trouble as well, yes, that's true. But what do we call them? Babies, infants, okay? Now, infants are in the family. And man, are babies a cause for joy. That's why the Cook family was up here with that incredibly cute little kid named Elijah. They're happy about it. 
One thing I know for sure about babies, they are dependent. They need nurture. They need care. They need the rest of the family to pay attention to them and help them grow. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2 says, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Hebrews 5.12 says it in a more confrontational way to chide people who should have been growing. Listen to this. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's Word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Ouch. Now, where does every Christian start? Right here, at the baby stage. And as you look at these different chairs, understand this. Every single one of these chairs, once you trust Christ, is a cause for joy. What God doesn't want you to do is to get stuck. You see, if the family welcomes a newborn into their home, everybody's happy. Instagram explodes. All kinds of food arrives. Pictures are made. Kid is dressed up to look like lettuce in some cases and placed on a table, okay, and a very creative picture that makes him look like a little bit of food surrounded by other... I mean, it's, it's wild what people do with babies to celebrate their arrival. You know what I'm talking about. I'm not picking on it. I'm just saying these are the sorts of things that we do with babies. It'd be strange if we did it with our 24-year-old son, right? <laughs> babies cause a great deal of joy, but they need a tremendous amount of care as well. And if in the life of that little baby... What would happen if he never spoke? What would happen if he didn't crawl? What would happen if he didn't respond to stimulus like cooing and baby talk and music? What would happen in the hearts of those parents? They would say, something's wrong. We need to go to the doctor. He's not progressing. He's not hitting his milestones. Here's the trouble, church. Too many people in God's family are content to know Jesus and remain right there. There is great joy in knowing Jesus. There is no shame in any of these chairs. They all matter. They're all designed by God, but God doesn't want you to stay there. If infants are cared for, they turn into what? Children. And the characteristic of a child is that he is self-centered. He wants it his way. A church family filled with children is an exhausting church because every child wants his way. And children say things like this. This was quoted to me from a friend a few years ago who was visiting another church, and this is one of the comment cards they got back. I'll clean it up because it's X-rated. They said, if you put the garlic bagels next to the plane one more cuss word time, I'm leaving this church. Yeah, anger and threats and cursing over the placement of bagels, spiritual child. Because a child says, I want the blue plate. He always gets the blue plate. It's my turn to have the blue plate. I won't eat without the blue plate. And the poor mother says, why didn't I buy two blue plates, right? Why don't I correct this child? A child is self-centered. Now, that's a normal part of the progression. An infant is loved and in the family, but completely ignorant. 
They don't know yet all about God. They don't know the Father's love. They don't know how or where or when to read the Bible. As a child begins to grow, he grows a great deal. And he is self-centered and he has what someone has called erratic confidence. Which means one of two things. The ice cream fell on the floor and the world is over. You know what I'm talking about? There is weeping and wailing that you won't see at the sign... Uh, you won't see it the scene of most major accidents because the strawberry ice cream is on the floor and there is weeping and wailing and rending of garments. And then on the other side, there is this wonderful but annoying stage called Me Do It where they slap mom's hand aside and say, I can do this, I've got it. Okay? The most annoying Christians in the whole world are first-year Bible college students because they know everything. I know this because I once was that Bible college student, but here's the joy of the child. He is interdependent for the first time in his life. In other words, he doesn't know everything, but he knows some things. He knows he's in the family of God. He knows he's... A, he knows he has brothers and sisters. He's beginning to understand the Father's love, and for the first time, he can contribute. This Thanksgiving is a pretty good example. Wives' families invited their very small children to help in some way. You can have a five-year-old set the table, at least with the cheap stuff. You wouldn't want to put a five-year-old in charge of deep-frying the turkey, though, would you? But they can help. They can put out the napkins. They can clear their table. They can take out the trash as long as it's not bigger than they are. They can help. If you are a spiritual child, that's a great chair to be in. And understand that you'll think that it's all about you, and your confidence in God and the church will oscillate wildly, but for the first time in your life, you can help and contribute within the family. Hebrews 5.11 says, we have a great deal to say about this, and it's difficult to explain since you have become too lazy to understand. Although by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the basic principles of God's Word again. You need milk, not solid food. Now, everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced with the message about righteousness because he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, for those whose senses have been trained to distinguish between good and evil. In 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul says that to those new believers, he was like a nursing mother and also a loving father. He says, you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. They were in God's family. There was no doubt about it. They were saved, but they needed instruction. They needed encouragement. They needed growth. Next stage, children become young adults, adolescents, and then young adults. This is a beautiful chair because for the first time in their life, they start setting aside that selfishness, and a young adult, for the first time in his life, is focused on others. They want to know what the Father wants. They want to know what their purpose is. If you're 18, 19, 20, the central, the central question in your life is, why am I here? What is my life going to amount to? What kind of education or training do I need to get so that I can make a difference? Every person was born to that, both on earth and in spiritual matters. But young adults are vulnerable to pride and discouragement. A young professional in his first job, unless he is especially gifted with humility, 
will make a difference, start contributing, and then, like that first-year Bible college student, think they've got it all figured out and be filled with pride so that the boss is an idiot. And they've figured it out. They're also prone to discouragement. So a person working in an office for a first time with clients may be genuinely shocked to find that clients are unreasonable. And that young employee can pour their life into a project, and the client sends it right back and says it stinks, and I want 18 changes. So we oscillate between pride that I can figure all this out to the discouragement of knowing that people are a little bit mean. In church life, it means that Christians in this stage are often idealistic or naive about life in the family. And when they find out that the pastor sins too, a lot of them can't handle it. And sometimes, let me give you a very practical application, sometimes people leave church altogether and get discouraged and pull back everything that they're starting to contribute at the exact moment when they were starting to understand the Father's purpose and they could have begun to walk into their greatest significance on earth or in heaven. But someone will discourage them, someone will sin against them, and they'll say something like this, well, if that's what Christians are like, who needs them? And they will say that that is spiritual wisdom and discernment, and it's not. It's just young adult discouragement about what real life is actually like. It's a beautiful stage. It's a beautiful chair, but everyone has its problems. 1 John 2.14 speaks about young adults. John wrote, I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the Word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. That's quite a statement of spiritual maturity. You are strong, the Word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the living... You have overcome the evil one. In other words, a young adult is someone who is self-directed to God's Word. They need to be fed and taught and trained, but they're self-feeders too, and they're seeking out God, and they're doing battle with evil, and they're winning because they know the Father. It's a beautiful chair. Young adults, given enough time and God's grace and purpose in their life, eventually become what? Parents. Spiritual parents. Paul referred to himself as a spiritual parent to the Corinthians, for instance. He said to Timothy, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. What's he talking about? Paul's writing that from a jail cell, knowing that he is about to be killed, and he's saying, Timothy, it's your turn. You're not a young man anymore. You have to step up as a dad, and you have to take the message that I gave you, and you have to give it to other people who will give it still to others. A parent is a disciple who makes disciples who makes disciples. And the single difference between the young spiritual adult, and has nothing to do with chronological age, and the spiritual parent is whether they are reproducing themselves and what God has taught them in the lives of other people. If you think you're a spiritual parent, and you might be, there's only one question to answer. If you're a parent, please introduce me to your kids. What difference has the Father's love and the Father's training and gifting, what difference has that made in your life? Show it to me in the lives of others. Those are parents. Now, let me ask you a couple more questions before I conclude. If I could have the table again. At what point do you think belief in Jesus comes in? 
This is a spiritual progression. Where does belief in Jesus as Savior come in? That's the difference between what? Death and life. What about Christian baptism? Those of you who know the Bible and have read the Bible, and if you don't and you haven't, no big deal. We're all learning. We're all in one of these chairs. We're just trying to learn where we are and move forward. Where does baptism come in at this table? There was a lot of mumbling, but no, no bold answering. Could I have a bold answer? Pretty quick, right? If we read the book of Acts, it says in Acts 2, they believed and they were baptized. See, some people misunderstand they, baptism. They think when I'm a young adult or I'm a parent, then when I'm fully mature, then I'll be able to live up to my baptism. No, baptism is a first childlike step of obedience to Jesus. If you know that Jesus is your Savior, if you have that assurance, you're a candidate to baptism. And if you haven't been baptized, please do so. Let us know on the card that you haven't taken that step. It's a huge step around the table. Now, what about this? What about serving? What about serving God, serving others, inside the church and outside the church? Where should that happen? It can happen as soon as someone is a child, right? You just wouldn't want to put them in charge of the whole thing. We have really mature, gifted, young high school kids who help in children's ministry. They're screened and trained just like everybody else. They're given responsibilities according to their age and maturity and biblical understanding. If you're not serving, if you've been following Jesus for a long time and you're not serving, something has been misunderstood, something is missing. What about the big hot topic in a lot of churches, not ours? You're a generous, open-handed, open-hearted bunch. What about the topic of financial giving? Where do you think that gets serious at the table? Can children give? Do they do so on a committed basis? No. When a child feels especially content and well taken care of, they might, in a moment of generosity, share. Right? But they have to be taught. Young adults are much better givers, but they're worried that there won't be enough for them. You know who gives and gives and gives and gives and gives? Parents. Here's the difference. It's a mark of maturity to give on a basis of commitment rather than convenience. An infant doesn't know he should. A child will do so only when he is emotionally moved or it's convenient or safe. A young adult is learning to give, but a parent says, it doesn't matter how I feel. It doesn't matter how tired I am. They step forward and help take care of the rest of the family. If your financial giving is erratic, that says something about the chair. And there's joy in every one of them, but God doesn't want you to stay where you are. Parents. They're responsible for the rest of the table. Are they perfect? Nope. What do parents need? Talk to me, parents. They need peers. Absolutely. They need encouragement that it gets better. So a mom of a two-year-old and a three-year-old may lean on a mom of a 13 and a 15-year-old to say, he's driving me crazy. Is this normal? Sometimes I feel like I hate my little children. Is that okay? <laughs> well, yes, as long as you don't act on it. Yes, it's a, it's a normal part of the experience. I haven't slept well in about 18 months. Is that normal? Yes, it is, because you're caring for infants. 
Parents need rest. Parents need encouragement. They need hope. No one at any point in this chair, in any of these chairs, is done. When does this discipleship process end? When Jesus finally brings you home and glorifies you. Here's the point, church. If we're going to be serious about doing what Jesus wants, we're going to have to have a common understanding that the business of Crosspoint is making disciples. We'll have to understand what we mean by that. That a disciple is someone who knows Jesus for himself, is becoming more and more like him, and more and more is joining Jesus on his mission. And perhaps most importantly and practically for you today is to find yourself somewhere on that table. There is joy and your Father loves you at every stage. If you're spiritually dead, in other words, if this makes little sense to you and you're not sure that you need Jesus as a Savior, let me tell you plainly, you do and He loves you. And the good news is for you. And you need to be born again and join others at the table. There is no tragedy. There is no trouble at any of these chairs once you're in the family of God. God loves you exactly where you are. He just doesn't want you to stay there. Can we pray together? If you know the Lord and you know how to pray, could you take a moment and ask Him which chair you're in? And then would you ask Him to help you keep moving around the table? The hope of the world is doing what Jesus told us to do. We won't get better. The world won't be saved if we follow our own ideas. The hope of the world, the hope of heaven, is doing exactly what Jesus told us to do. Beginning with people who don't know Him, who don't care about Him, who have never heard of Him, giving them the good news so that they come into God's family and then staying with them so that they move all the way around the table and they become spiritual parents, that's what Jesus told us to do. The church in Mexico I was just in is now pastored by three, three young men who were once babies in the church nursery. It's a beautiful thing. They went from not knowing the Lord to shepherding, caring, and preaching to people who once changed their diapers. It's a beautiful picture of maturity and growth. And you may never be a pastor. Very few of you ever will be. But God wants you to find your chair, know that He loves you right where you are, and then hear His voice and follow your family along with Jesus to move over into the next chair. He loves you right where you are. He just doesn't want you to stay there. Father, make this a disciple-making church. There's no other purpose for us. We can do 58 things, even biblical things, but if we're not making disciples, we're disobeying you, Jesus. And you're at work and you've changed this church so much in one-on-one -on -one relationships and in small groups and in worship services and in every single other thing, uh, Lord, that you've directed us to do. We've done a lot of our own thing too. And thank you for not blessing that and allowing us to stay with those things that were not your plan. But we want to grow as your disciples. We want in three months, six months, a year as individuals, we want to be more like you. And as we move into young adult and spiritual maturity as parents, we want to look behind us and beside us and see people that are coming with us that are more and more clearly seen as Christians. Give us grace to do it. In Jesus' name, amen.